Welcome to ASRS's Journal of Vitreoretinal Diseases Authors Forum. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Murray, Editor-in-Chief of JVRD. On each episode of the JVRD Authors Forum, I will interview innovative retinal researchers on their studies featured only in JVRD and how these studies will impact our patients' care in our clinics. Tune in to hear directly from investigators about the clinical implications of the newest and highest quality research in the field of retina. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Charles Wyckoff from Redna Consultants of Texas to discuss his manuscript, Impact of Pre-Filled Syringes and Masking on Post-Intravitreal Injection and Ophthalmitis. Welcome, Charlie. Tim, great to be here with you. Thanks for highlighting this work. So can you take me through what prompted you to look at this and how you established the, the study design? Absolutely, Tim. So, you know, one of the most common procedures that we as retina specialists do every day across the country and around the world is give intravitreal injections. There's many different pharmaceuticals we use, many different indications for which we give these injections. And of course, one thing we never want to do is cause a problem for our patients that they don't already have before we're giving these injections. And so all of us are acutely aware of all of the potential adverse effects, the complications, if you will, of these injections. And so it's important to continuously reassess the rates of those complications so that we can make informed decisions to guide best practices, both locally and nationally and around the world. And so I'm in a, in a, in a large urban-based retina practice out of, out of Houston, Texas. There's about 15 of us doctors now. And so we routinely follow our rates of infection. And in particular, of course, endophthalmitis, or the, the process by which you get an infection inside the globe following a, a, an external injection, in this case, an intravitreal injection, is, is one of the most commonly thought about complications following intravitreal injection. And so the process here was very simple. It was to look at a six, six and a half year period um, across our entire practice, looking at the rates of endophthalmitis in a retrospective fashion. And what was interesting when we looked at this time period was that there were two major variables that shifted during this six year time period. One was the introduction um, of the pre-filled syringe. Right, so going from glass vial-based preparations for ranibizumab and aflibercept to pre-filled syringe for those medications. Um, and we wanted to look at the rates of infection and ophthalmitis before and after that transition. And then the second one was to gauge masking, because of course we all have lived through the COVID experience. And in March of 2020, um, in March of 2020, we as a practice implemented a universal masking policy, as I think all of us did around that same time. And so we looked at rates of infection before and after both of those meaningful sort of clinical transitions. And so I'm assuming that when we talk about masking, you were masking the team. So the surgeon was masking, the assistants were masking, and the patient was being masked, correct? Critical. I'm glad you're bringing this up. A lot of details when we talk about masking. Not all masking is the same. Yes, it was Correct. everyone in the practice was universally masked. But it wasn't just masking, right? Then you have questions of, well, making sure the mask is on appropriately, making sure that the part above the nose is adequately sealed so you don't get air coming around the nose. Because theoretically, if you don't put it on appropriately, you may actually increase the risk of sort of your exhaled air that potentially is causing, is, is carrying um, nasopharyngeal organisms across the eye. You may actually increase your risk. And so, yes, critical, the masks are placed on appropriately. Now, you know, there's a retrospective study. So 
Are we 100% sure that every patient, every doctor had them on appropriately? No, of course not. But that was best practices that we were trying to achieve. And also, you were able to use your electronic medical record to pull the data for these for these patients grossly to give you your numerator and your denominator for, for your study, correct? Correct. Exactly right. So over this time period, we had about 310,000 injections, 2015 through, through midway through 2021. Um, and, and during that time period, um, uh, uh, we looking at both of those factors, if you look at all cases of endophthalmitis, we had about 100 cases of endophthalmitis during that period, exogenous endophthalmitis caused by the injections. So we didn't look at other causes of endophthalmitis, things like endogenous endophthalmitis. Um, but if you look at just the injection caused endophthalmitis, the rate was about one out of 3,000 injections. Our official rate was 0.033%. Charlie, one of the things too is is how did you define endophthalmitis? Is Certainly. this clinical endophthalmitis? Certainly. Is this culture proven endophthalmitis? Yeah. Because the details become yeah. so important in these kind of studies. Yeah, so glad you're bringing that up. And we looked at that carefully. So this was a clinical diagnosis of endophthalmitis, regardless of culture obtained, regardless of result of that culture. And I can give you those extra results. Overall, about a third to a half, depending on the particular patient population, had a culture positive result. And about a half to even two thirds in some populations had a culture negative result. But we still included all those in endophthalmitis. And really the trigger for us was the giving of intravitreal antibiotics. So if the clinician gave intravitreal antibiotics, even if they ended up changing the diagnosis to something else, we use that as a clinical threshold to suspect the possibility of endophthalmitis. I think that's so important because truthfully, you know, you may look like we know some of our colleagues and say, no, it's not culture positive, right. but I'm with you. It's kind of the clinical utility of the study. Right. So if you thought that there was such a, a concern of endophthalmitis that you injected your patient with individual antibiotics, right. that, that to me should almost be the gold standard for, for a clinical yeah. definition. I completely agree with you because we can always look back 2020 hindsight and say, well, it was culture negative. I could have just treated them with steroids. Well, maybe. But what we really care about when you're treating patients is what's that risk that I need to inform the patient of that I'm going to need to treat you like I'm thinking it could be an infection. And of course, my, me like yourself, I'm sure, Tim, we have a very low threshold to not miss an infection, right? One of the worst things I can do is infections are usually treatable when they're bacterial in the eye, as long as you catch them early. And one of the worst things we could do is take a bacterial infection and not treat it early. So we, we definitely err on the side of giving intravitreal antibiotics if there's any possibility of an infectious process. So now take me through your, your study results, because yeah. I think that's some of the most fascinating part of this manuscript. Yeah, right. So the, the key finding, which has been published before by other large series, but we're validating with our own series, our own patient populations in a different time frame, was that the rate of endophthalmitis is clinically meaningfully lower when you use a pre-filled syringe versus when you're transferring the substance from a glass vial. And, and truthfully, I wish that that was not the results <laughs> because it makes this challenging because we all have medications. For example, now the new FDA-approved medications for geographic atrophy, which come in a glass, glass vial. Ferisumab comes in a glass vial. All the biosimilars to date come in a glass vial. So this is a common issue where we are regularly using medications out of a glass vial 
but it's important to realize that the rate of infection there across not just our study here in Houston, but now multiple studies across the country and around the world have shown a higher rate of infection when you're transferring the medication from a vial versus using a pre-filled syringe. What I was interested in too is sort of the devil in the details like always. Yeah. So you know that there's been studies that have showed that the pre-filled syringes had higher rates of endophthalmitis right. than that. And in many of those instances, the the, the drug was being um, repackaged yeah. in, at a pharmacy level so right. that you received a pre-filled syringe. Right. Um, that you attached a needle to. And right. it was interesting to have that discussion. So yeah. it's really it's really critical to kind of understand, but that data at least made me comfortable to think that with best practices, you can you can give medication from a, from a vial. So many of us that do that, yeah. I think try to maximize the conditions as we move yeah. medications out. Yeah, you're exactly Any right. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I don't think the point here is that we should not use medicines in glass vials um, and, and only use pre-filled syringes. I don't think that that's appropriate. I think the appropriate thing is to pick the right medicine for the right patient and the right indication. And just know that there can be a higher risk when you're transferring the medication. And therefore, you've got to be meticulous about your preparation, about who is doing the drawing up with the medication to make sure that they're adequately and appropriately trained and supervised. And then really pay the utmost attention to sterile technique to really make sure that we are minimizing any potential risk for our patients and be aware that the extra steps, any extra step that can lead to, to introduction of unwanted bacteria could increase the risk. So really being meticulous about our preparations for our patients is the critical point. You know, I think that's so important because we do so many of these, um, you know, th that having a solid protocol, at least within your practice, yeah. it amazes me how different we all are. So yeah. when my patients are seeing somebody else for an injection, they come back and go, You're, you do it totally differently. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and so now I pre-warn my patients, <laughs> you know, this doctor is going to have the same concerns, but they may address them differently. Yeah. So how did that work in your practice? Do you guys have a set protocol? Yeah, critical point, because just like you implied, all of our doctors, all of our 15 docs do it slightly differently. Some use subconjunctival anesthesia, some use topical anesthesia, some use gel, some use drops, some use, you know, we all use povidone iodine during these cases was a critical common denominator here. But I think that the commonalities across our doctors are just as important as the differences. And the commonalities are to have an exposed area of conjunctiva that has betadine on it, povidone iodine, for long enough to allow sterilization of that zone. So for example, not all of our doctors use speculums, but all of them, when I say speculums, I mean like a bladed metal speculum. Some people use, use mechanical speculum with fingers, so they hold the eyelids open. But either way, you're holding the eyelid open, you're exposing the, the injection site so that you're not going through eyelashes, for example, and the needle is going straight through the conjunctiva after that conjunctiva has been prepared with povidone iodine. Those are the commonalities. We also, you know, now are, 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 are a little more relaxed about masks, for example, but most of the doctors are still very clear that they would like patients and physicians to be masked at the time of the injection. I don't really see a downside to doing that unless the area around the nose that we talked, touched on earlier is not taped. And I don't tape all of them, but there, you need to make sure that there's a snug fit with the mask. And if there's not, I would actually recommend taking the mask off. Fortunately, we didn't see endophthalmitis rates change through the course of the pandemic. Correct. 
Um, so for our practice, whether you whether we masked or didn't mask, didn't make a difference. Yeah. And it's always been interesting because some of the studies have come out showing masking was worse yeah. in terms of infection rates. And, and that goes to not all masks are created equal and not all masks fit in the same way. Yeah. So take us to your masking study. What what did what did you think the take home message should be? Yeah. From a masking perspective, we found what you said that you saw in your own clinics, which was no difference in the infection rate before and after the mask introduction. Because before March of 2020 with COVID, very few of our doctors were masking themselves and, and even fewer patients were being masked during the injections. But after 2020 of March, we were all universally masked and we saw really no no significant, no statistically significant, or really no, no, no indication of a numerical difference between the rates of infection before and after that. Which tells me that you know if 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 you're if you're if you're if you're going to apply best practices, you can get there with or without a mask. The key comes down to antiseptic on the eye, avoiding exposure of the needle to any other parts of the body other than the site of injection, and then meticulous preparation when you're transferring from a vial to a syringe. Yeah, I think those are really such key points, and because this is the number one procedure performed in the United States, yeah, you know there 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 is so much possibility of concern with complications related to this, and, and really the complication is endophthalmitis. So I think that these studies, even though we often look and say, oh well, this has been reported before, this has to be looked at sort of in this ongoing yeah. basis to assure that we're maintaining the kind of responses that we want. Yeah. So I love that, that you highlighted the povidone iodine. I love that you highlighted holding exposure, whether it's a speculum, which is what we use, or, or an alternative. And then I think that the key of being really careful about where that needle is, yeah. that, that needle doesn't go anywhere with me and from, except for from removing the needle cap and injecting the patient yeah. and then off the field. And the other thing I love is that it seems that, that the data suggests that the pre-filled syringes, that we don't have to worry about them, um, but that it also allows us, as you know, to have the latitude where if we don't have access to a pre-filled syringe, as we don't for many of our medications, yeah. um, that, that we can we can still maintain best practices. Agreed. And, and as a unified group, we need to continuously encourage the sponsors that make new medications to really consider this data. While we can use drugs safely out of a gas, gas um, vial, the preference should always be, please get this medicine in a pre-filled syringe as soon as possible. So what do you think is the, is the hold from, for, for medications coming out yeah. in a pre-filled syringe? Yeah, I've had a lot of these discussions, and, and it's, there's a lot in this, the main one being a regulatory hurdle. You know, fortunately, the FDA regulates safety and efficacy, safety being equally important to efficacy. And when you, when you store a medication in a different container, like a pre-filled syringe, it's critical that you've shown stability of that medication and that the medication is maintaining its properties over the lifespan of that syringe. And that hurdle is not easy. Part of the challenges, of course, become down to, um, you know, patent protection, for example, because a lot of these techniques that are used to, 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 to create the syringes may be patent protected. So one company may not have access to it from another, versus another company. These are all surmountable problems. They take significant investment. And I think a lot of times companies choose, we're going to invest to get the medication approved, and then we'll pivot and try to get the, the, the pre-filled syringe, which I completely understand that development path. But in an ideal world, we would have both.
Right. So I, I, I think it is interesting because for many of our readers, they don't always understand why, why can't I have both, right? right? Why is there that lag between one and the other? So I love the manuscript in JVRD because I think it reminds us of uh, critical pathways. And, and the numbers in your practice are so large that we get that, that plethora of opportunity to look at some of these fine details. So I wanna thank you very much for joining us. Excellent as always and, and superb discussion. And I ask our viewers to know that they can read the entire article on JVRD. Jim, thanks for highlighting this work. Appreciate the discussion. Appreciate all you do for the society. And Dr. Wyckoff, thank you so much. Great to have you here tonight. Thanks for tuning in to the JVRD Authors Forum. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit www.asrs.org forward slash JVRD forum on the ASRS website to learn more. See you soon.